Well, good morning and welcome everybody to Encounter Church where you matter to us, you matter to God. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter Church, and I think we're going to have to go to three worship experiences next week. Praise God. This is awesome. Love this. Love this. Hey, in, uh, in most of the seabacks in front of you, um, we've got one of these. This is, uh, we call this our series notebook. Uh, what this is about is that we have a saying around here that says that, uh, um, that it, uh, a, a dull pencil beats a sharp mind any day in remembering the truths that God tells you. Uh, so the idea is as God speaks to your heart throughout this series, maybe here on Sundays, maybe, um, maybe throughout the week as you uh, dig into the Bible on your own, write down whatever it is God speaks to you because it's probably worth remembering. We're in a series kicking off today called Overcome. And I just want to tell you the idea behind this series is to say we're all going to have setbacks. We're all going to have struggles that could defeat us. Or if handed over to God, he could use those things and will use those things to develop us. So we're going to take a look at fear of loss, of grief, of doubt. This morning we take a look though at the most important one, the hardest one I think it is for God to overcome in our lives, which is apathy, which is indifference, which is sort of like meh, right? right? Not caring. Because we see throughout the story of God, throughout the Bible, we see time and time again, God doing something with action. Even if it's negative action, even if it's doubt, God uses doubt all the time. Uh, Gideon doubts, and God shows up to him in the form of an angel. Gideon is hiding, remember? And, and God very ironically sends an angel to say, hail mighty warrior in hiding. It's a joke. You can laugh. It's cool. Hail my, and God does. He turns him into this mighty warrior. And then Thomas is doubting the actual physical resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus, what does he do? He shows up to doubting Thomas and says, check out my scars. Put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. God does something with doubt. But indifference, but apathy, but meh. No, we, we think often that, that the opposite of faith is doubt. It isn't. Eli Weisel, who is a Holocaust survivor and author and general, amazing human being, he uh, wrote one time, he said, no, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Indifference, apathy is the opposite of faith. So we're going to dig into a story in the Bible this morning that really highlights apathy from two guys and action, God's resolution from one unexpected place. But before we do, I kind of, I want to share with you throughout this week and preparing for this, what, where my emotions were on this. Because I have a fear and I have a prayer. Now, share the, the fear with you first. My fear is that if we, as we talk about apathy and as we move towards resolution, my fear within all of this is that you're going to leave here today, you're going to head into your weeks with a whole to-do list of shoulds. I should, do, I should care more. I should do more. I should show up more. I should offer more. I should, I should, I should. I don't want you to leave church here today feeling like I just should all over you guys. It's, okay, it took a little while. It's like 11, so get, okay, more coffee. We'll bring it in. We don't want that. I don't want you, that's not the gospel. In fact, we have another saying, whenever we talk about serving around here, if it feels like you're having your arm twisted or obligation, that's completely opposite 
of the gospel. The gospel is grace. The gospel is a free gift. The gospel is everything that we do and we give. It is out of an expression of gratitude for what God has done for us. That's gospel. So my fear is as we talk about resolution being the opposite of apathy, my fear is that we'll miss grace. I don't want you to miss grace. My prayer within all of this is that God's Holy Spirit is gonna move you towards resolution in some area. It is going to move you towards not just belief, but move you towards action in some area. And you're gonna move towards it so deliberately and so passionately that even, even if it starts to hurt, you're gonna, you're gonna crave it and you're gonna long it because it's better to hurt for something. It's better to hurt with a purpose than to exist without one. And I don't think the creator God who made each and every one of you wants you to drift through life in this fog of apathy and inaction. I think this creator God who gave you your passions and longings, I think he wants you to long for him, even if it hurts at times. Uh, let's go into the story. It's going to come to us from Luke chapter 10. Um, there's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. We give those Bibles away every week, and we absolutely love that. If you don't have a Bible at home, or if you just like ours better, take it with you. That's our gift. That's awesome. If you don't have a Bible under there, somebody at 915 took it, and we can just say a prayer of thanks for that, because someone needed it. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me, and as we said earlier, phone friendly. So like blue, blue glow on your face indicates deep scripture reading. Luke is where we're going. The gospel of Luke, page number on the program, chapter 10. We're going to pick it up in verse 25. And it says this, Luke wrote, hey, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's such a bad question on so many fronts. Right? On, the, on the first hand, he is that guy, you know, what must I do? He is that student in your class who like, constantly raises his hand and says, is this going to be on the test? And the, the teacher or professor constantly, right, uh, it is now, and then everybody groans, because he, and then he does it the next day and the next day. Everybody groans, and the teacher, the, the professor knows that he's just trying to do the absolute minimum required to get by. Like he's got a grade in his mind. In this case, he's got eternal life in mind. And he wants to know like, where's the bar? Because like heaven help me if I go just a little over what's required for that bar. Like I don't want to do that. So I just want to hit the exact minimum. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is, I'm just going to drop some wisdom on you guys here. All right, this is what I've gathered in my 34 years. I'm going to stand behind this statement as long as I can until it doesn't make any sense anymore. But they're like, this is just Dirk's like wisdom. Maybe don't write it down. Um, I don't think anything worthwhile is ever developed through minimal effort. Like, I, I just haven't seen that happen. I don't see somebody achieving their dream job, uh, real estate agent of the year or home builder of the millennia or corner office or top of the assembly line, like whatever it is. I don't see anybody achieving their dream job through minimal effort. When it comes to relationships, it's more tempting, but I also don't see anybody developing anything worthwhile through minimal effort. If you're looking for deep friendships that span a lifetime, 
more than minimal effort is going to be required, even if you have a natural disposition to like each other. Even if you, for now, find it easy to like each other, it's going to require more than minimal effort. A romantic relationship, if you want a marriage to last beyond the first decade on into the sixth or seventh, it is going to require more than minimal effort. In your relationship with God, it is no exception. Anything worthwhile developing with God is going to require more of you than to ask that simple question, what's going to be on the test when we see each other face to face? It's more than that. And the other reason why it's a downright bad question is it's bad theology. I mean, he asks, what must I do to inherit this thing? It doesn't matter it's eternal life. What, what does it require for you to inherit anything at all, ever? The very definition of inheriting something means you didn't do anything. Somebody else did all the heavy lifting. You just received it from them. I mean, unless you're talking about what do I do to, to like get adopted, I don't know, into a family, then the concept of doing something to earn an inheritance just like doesn't make any sense, which is exactly along the lines of what we see in the gospel. There's nothing that you can really do to inherit eternal life. It's a gift. Being a child of God included in his loving and gracious family, that's a gift. Back to my fear I mentioned earlier about how there are so many things in this world that will demand your life from you, your time from you, and your relationship capacity from you. When you leave here today, some of you are going to go trying to earn this inheritance. And I just think it's critically important for us to like pause the rest of the message right now and to, for me to just remind you that there is no amount of resolution, there's no amount of action, there's no amount of giving, there's no amount of serving that could ever earn for you the inheritance that is eternal life. It's a gift simply by being a child of God. It's a beautiful thing. And even though it's a bad question, Jesus accommodates the man and he takes the opportunity to answer him. And so he says in verse 30, he replies, a story. Jesus said in verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's an extremely popular road between two massive Jewish metropolitan cities, Jerusalem and Jericho, when he was attacked by robbers. So they did a few things. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away. And they left him half dead. I think those are going to be important. In the next section, I think it's going to be important that he's He's stripped of all his clothes and that he's half dead. He's, he's unconscious. Uh, for right now, though, I just want to see us. This guy beaten, bruised, bruised, bloodied, and laying alongside the road. And he got, he got a, a good beating. And before we see what happens next when somebody finds him, I want to acknowledge how easy it would be for them to see this guy alongside the road and said, he must have done something. Because in the first century, especially in that, on that road, it was not 
uncommon at all for thieves, for robbers to jump out. As people walked down the road, if they were unaccompanied and they'd carried however much money they needed in cash on their person and just say, give me the money or we'll hurt you. And it was entirely commonplace to hand over the money and to be on your way. It was uncommon for somebody to receive a beating for it. So it was the sort of the expectation that if you've passed somebody on that particular road and they got a beating, you'd think to yourself, must have done something. He must have ever resisted. He must have said something. Maybe he was a part of them. I don't know. He must have done something. I'll tell you what it was. He shouldn't have been traveling by himself at that time of day or night down that road basically asked for it. You know, she shouldn't have been drinking so much. If she was really in danger, she would have called somebody and got out of that house. I would have. Yeah, but did you see what she was wearing? I just want to offer that it is entirely easy to blame the victim say that they brought it on themselves and move on without caring in the world. Embracing indifference and apathy. It was entirely easy back then. And it still is today. Those are all bad excuses for not caring, for apathy, for indifference. These two guys, I think, I think have some better ones. Let's listen to them. In verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, that's an assistant priest, a church intern, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. A a priest and and a Levite, Uh, Two guys that work in the temple, Um, religious workers, church workers, they see this guy beaten and bruised. I'm not going to stop. I've got places to be. People people are counting on me. You know, the priest, after all, Jerusalem and Jericho, like I said, huge Jewish metropolitan areas, cities, two of the top three cities population-wise in Israel at the time. I mean, this guy, people were relying on him. If, if he doesn't hurry up and get to where he's going, what if he's not there to, to facilitate, to usher in the, this, this kind of experience between God and, and people? What if, what if he, he touches the man and because he's beaten, there's probably blood, and touching the blood, he becomes ceremonially unclean. Not just him, that extends, by the way, to the entire household, to family, to staff, to anybody he's around. They're all unclean. There's nothing he can do. He can't, he can't facilitate this thing anymore. Shut it down for a week. Oh, listen, we don't, have, we don't have time for that. What if, what if the half-dead guy goes all the way dead on the way to Jericho and he ends up, he ends up touching a dead body? I mean, if that happens, he is talking a lot more ceremonially unclean time than just a week. He's going to be out of commission for a month, maybe longer. Plus, if he touched a dead, if he was around this dead body, he would have to rent, he'd have to tear his robes as a common act of lament over the loss of life. 
And, he, and since the clothes as a priest weren't his, they belonged to the temple, and they're extremely elaborate, fancy, expensive, he would be, he'd be destroying the valuable temple property. I mean, of course, that's against the law. I've got every excuse in the book not to do anything. Plus, remember when we said that the guy, not only beaten, but he was unconscious, and he was naked? It was entirely common to, to size up somebody by what they wore, the accent that they had, or the language that they spoke to see, are these my people or not? The guy knew, I'm supposed to love God and love my neighbor, right? The Levite would have known that. Jesus didn't first say that. The book of Leviticus said that. They knew it. But the question, who's my neighbor, is an interesting one because they're going, he should, he should look like me, he should act like me, he should speak like I do, and then I'll help him. But how do I know if he's unconscious and if he's naked? I don't know what he's wearing. What if he's part of them? What if he's the enemy? What if he speaks with a Latin accent, which would indicate that he is part of the Roman occupying force? He's my enemy. And what if what if I help this guy, bring him back to Jericho, fix them all up, and then he dies, and I'm out of commission, and the, li the spiritual lives of thousands are in the balance. Aren't the spiritual life of thousands more important than the physical life of one enemy? Of course, I have a good reason not to do anything. It's a good excuse to go on not caring Listen, those are good excuses. What's yours? I find myself not caring when I know I should. I'm sitting in my living room just a little while ago and I'm flipping through Instagram like a good millennial, right? And I come across this remarkable picture, just gorgeous. You know, it's, a, it's on a skyline, sunset, or maybe sunrise. It's like thick and hazy, seeing it through. You know, it's impressive right up until when I read the caption beneath it. And I see this, this pastor friend of mine posted it. And he said, this is a picture of the Northern California wildfires. Letting everybody know that worship services canceled all this weekend. If you could just pray for the families displaced, not only in our church community, but in our city and in area of Northern California. And it captured my heart for just a moment long enough for me to, to pray, to do the thing that he asked me to do, to offer up a prayer on behalf of those people. That's the first amazing thing that happened is it grabs my attention. I care for a moment. And the second incredible, amazing thing that happened was nothing at all. I don't even remember what the next post was that distracted me. And I look back and I'm like, the opposite of faith isn't doubt or heresy. The opposite is apathy and indifference. I want to care more. Why don't I care more? I think we have a lot of reasons for not caring more. I think on the top of that list, psychologists call it compassion, compassion fatigue. It's just we're overwhelmed with things to care about. 
I mean, in the same like newsfeed session of scrolling, you come across those Northern California wildfires and everybody displaced. You come across a, a Thai youth soccer team trapped in a flooded cave. You, you come across a cat that fell down into a well. You come across your friend's GoFundMe page. You come across the fact that Jesus saw, someone saw the face of Jesus in a potato. And you're like, I care. I don't care so much about the potato thing, but like, I care about so many other things. And, and I don't have the capacity to care about all of it. And it's, just, it's, it's overwhelming. What do we do? I think the next one, uh, if, if being overwhelmed is the first reason why we don't care more, the second one is just this general sense of, uh, of feeling helpless. Like the problem is so huge and so grand. The problem is so, so systemic with such a long history. Who am I? I don't have the expertise. I don't have the massive amount of resources that it would take or the education that it would take to even scratch the surface of this thing. I'm just trying to like get my toddler potty trained. I don't even know how to do my 10-year-old's math homework anymore. I'm not the person. I'm totally, totally helpless. And the third one I think is, is probably the biggest one. The biggest thing, a reason why we don't care more yet is because we are so blessed with comfort. I'm not sure if blessed actually is the right word to fill in there. Um, by the very fact that you're here today, I think you are part of the most comfortable generation in the history of the human species. And if if you can get a pizza delivered to anywhere in America in under 20 minutes, like this is a pretty great place to live. <laughs> when we moved in here, this is building, you know, and I'm like calling places and getting lunch or whatever. Like I found out that I couldn't get my sub delivered freakishly fast by Jim, from Jimmy Jones. By going on the app, I had to like actually call on a phone and talk to another person to order my sub because I was just like that far outside the delivering, and I'm like, no way, this, we, now we gotta move again. I can't believe this. <laughs> like, if that saying is true, that comfort kills calling, what does it mean for us that live in the most comfortable time and place in the history of the human species? We have a lot of reasons for not stopping, for not caring. Listen to the one guy who does. So far, we had a priest and we had a Levite. Uh, the priest is kind of the head guy in the church. The Levite is the intern. Okay, the next one is going to be a small group leader. Like, I can totally tell. Two points make a line. We've got a kids volunteer showing up. They're going to save the day like they do, let's be honest. And they're going to do amazing things. I get it. It's going to be an average person who comes to church. They're going to show up. It's going to be amazing. But Jesus is telling the story. So Jesus said in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And then in verse 37, Jesus says, now here's the important thing, you go and do likewise. Like the, I'm sorry, who was it now? The Samaritan? 
You want me to be like the Samaritans? Do you know the level of like bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans? This, it's crazy to hear about, about how, like the pain that they would inflict upon one another. In Luke chapter 9, just by an example, Jesus is traveling through a predominantly Samaritan neighborhood and, and asks for a place to stay or to come into a home and they reject him. Okay, I kind of get that, Jews and Samaritans. It's not so uncommon. So the disciples walk away from that neighborhood and they go, Jesus, is now the time that you you want us to pray, call down fire from heaven on these people. I'm sorry, what? The very fact that you thought that was like an okay thing to say in front of Jesus seems to indicate there's probably a lot of bad blood between you guys. They knew about this story in, in, in Jewish history past, not too far past, that the Samaritans actually broke into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. It's like a place where God dwells. It's the holiest, holy place. They snuck into the courtyard around where people would be. They buried dead bones. They buried bones, uh, remains of dead bodies underneath just to ceremonially defile the entire worship place for a time. That's how angry they were at each other. In fact, Today, it's a common way to end our prayers in Jesus' name, amen. It makes sense. It's on his credibility, not ours, not yours. In Jesus' name, amen. We do that. It makes sense. It was a common way to end prayers for the Jews in that day to pray, and Lord, in the resurrection at the last day, remember not the Samaritans, amen. <laughs> Holy cow, and so Jesus is telling this story. Lead pastor, church intern, it's not the kids director. Samaritan shows up. He doesn't just show up though. He takes this bloodied, bruised Jewish man it picks him up and puts him on his animal. And he finishes the trek on to Jericho where he can get him a place to stay. I mentioned earlier, Jericho and Jerusalem are two huge Jewish city centers. And he knew he was going to be passing people on that highway. What does it look like, church, for a can't even say it, Samaritan, to be traveling down a busy road with a beaten, bloodied, half-dead Jewish man draped over his animal. Could you imagine the risk to personal life that this Samaritan was taking on himself simply by that, by that generous act, simply by caring? Try explaining that to the arresting officer. Oh no, no sir, I was trying to help him as the cuffs click on. Try explaining that to the Jewish dudes who are just outside the city of Jericho as he comes in and they see, hey, 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 that guy's a Samaritan, that guy's a Jew. I submit to you, he doesn't get a chance to explain himself. And then he's going, to, he's going to an innkeeper and we think, oh, this is probably something like a four season. He's maybe on a budget, so it's a holiday inn. It's not a holiday inn. 
It was, a, it was a first century hospitality expectation. If you traveled with somebody, with anybody, it was just expected that you'd have a place to stay once you got to that place. Doors would open, family, friends, fourth cousins. If you're from the same tribe of Israel or a neighboring one, they would let you in and let you stay there. Innkeepers, they, were, they only existed for the people who already burned all of the bridges with family and friends and everybody else knew not to let that guy back anymore. Innkeepers were not masters of hospitality management. No, no, no. Innkeepers were scoundrels. They were like one step above the thieves, only they housed the thieves that had to hide out in their places to stay at night. And innkeepers were notorious that if you couldn't pay your bill, They'd call people over, slave traders over, sell you into slavery while you're sleeping so you wake up to that noise being dragged away in the middle of the night. That's an innkeeper. And and it's like Samaritan is taking this Jewish guy and not only does he give like the first deposit and saying, put him up for a little while, I'm pledging myself and you don't get like, he's sharing his credit card number and expiration date. He's sharing his personal self. When I return, if there's anything else that he needs, I will, I myself will cover it. This Samaritan is showing up and I think he knows I can't do everything for everyone. But I can do this one thing for this one. And I'm going to give. And I'm going to invest. And I'm going to put in everything that I have. Even when it hurts. Especially when it hurts. I'm going to keep on giving. Church, you cannot do everything for everyone. But after getting to know so many of you over the last few years, I know that your hearts break and you hurt for that one thing. And I don't know if you knew it or not, but I actually keep a list. It's an Excel file on my computer. And I just, every time somebody tells me about these particular areas in the world that they hurt for, these ministries that they hurt for, I just write their name down and what it is. And then the way that God makes these connections, is just so beautiful. Because often you don't have to start something, you just join the works that somebody else has started along the way. And so some of you, you're one thing. You're, you're one, you can't do everything for everyone. You can do one thing, like the Samaritan does this one thing. Some of you have come up and you're saying, hearts just break for racial injustice in this country. Praise God for you. Many of you care deeply for foster children, for those experiencing anxiety, suffering under depression, caring for the unborn children of this world, caring for those addicted to alcohol, substance abuse, pornography, people in our community who just are deeply invested into radical discipleship and following after growing and becoming more and more like Jesus all the time. People in our community who want to help you live out and share this gift of singleness the best that you possibly can. Listen, the list goes on and on. There's so many different areas that you have your one thing that your heart just breaks. Maybe it's not a what, maybe it's a where. 
You visited a village or a town halfway across the world in junior high or, or high school or something. In your heart, you find just longs, it drifts back to that place and you love it and you want to see it thrive. You want to see God's kingdom come in that place. You want to see heaven in that place. Maybe it's a person or a who. There's somebody that God just keeps bringing up into your life again and again and again. The one thing is a one person who needs to experience Jesus through you or needs to be reconnected with Jesus through you. And they keep coming up and you find yourself praying for them, wondering about them, offering them up to God again and again and again. Maybe your one thing is right here at church and you serve in one of our, our, our ministries, our, our areas. We've got behind the starting point desk in the upper lobby, in the back, we just chalkboard art with the top serving areas of ushering or being on the barista team or worship production of kids ministries. Our uh, youth director, Josh Presley, he's new, by the way. We're awesome. We're happy he's here, right? Josh just told me, hey, they're looking for one more guy who cares about other guys to disciple our youth, junior high and high school. What's your one thing. Pour into it, invest into it, even when it hurts, especially when it hurts. Because here's the thing, I think I'm convicted that it's worth it, that it's far better to hurt with a purpose than to exist without one. As Jesus is telling the story about the Samaritan I don't know this, but I just imagine he's sharing this story in front of his close friends in Luke chapter 10, and he knows he's a few chapters out. He knows how long he's got left, and he's telling this story of a Samaritan at great personal risk of injury and pledging himself. He knows what's about to happen. As Jesus is telling the story, I imagine it with tears welling in his eyes because he knows he has an appointment in a garden to be betrayed by somebody who is so close to him, where he will be arrested, where he will be falsely accused and tried. He knows, he knows that they're gonna hurt him, that they're gonna insult him, that they're gonna whip him. He knows that they're gonna put him up and nail his hands onto a cross and people will be indifferent about it and apathetic about it, but he knows that it's worth it in the end because we ask Jesus, we say, Jesus, did it hurt? He says, of course it hurt. But it's far better to hurt with a purpose and to live without one. Church, I invite you to stand up where you are right now. We're gonna end our time together in prayer. As we do, we've got a prayer team set up in back. They would love to pray with you this morning. Whatever struggle, whatever hurt is going on in your life, maybe you just wanna care deeply about something in this world, head back to that team. They would love to pray with you. Let's all bow our heads, close our eyes. Heavenly Father, we wanna care. We wanna, we wanna truly exist, not in the sense of just meandering through life in a hazy fog of apathy and indifference of meh. God, we want to come alive. We want to live out your purpose that you see in us. We want to live out the meaning that you have for us. God, Holy Spirit, touch us right now. Show us what that thing might be. God, for some of us, we want to care. We just don't yet. So God, we pray 
a dangerous prayer. God bless us with discomfort so we won't be distracted by the things of this world and so we can see you more clearly. Church, keeping your eyes closed and heads bowed, I just want to ask you if you find yourself just praying that prayer, God bless me with discomfort, eyes closed, head bowed, would you just put your hands in the air right now? If you're just praying for this holy sense, amen, thank you. God bless me with this sense of discomfort. God, do not let these go. I see more raising up in the back. God, don't let these folks go, amen. God, bless them with a sense of meaning. Bless them with a sense of purpose. God, bless them with their one thing. God, bless them with action, not just today or this week, but a lifetime calling. In the name of Jesus, thank you. Amen.